A surgeon is convicted of three counts of manslaughter and one case of grievous bodily harm, then sentenced to seven years imprisonment. In August 2012, all convictions were quashed. A retrial on one count of manslaughter results in his acquittal and all charges other than a fraud charge is dropped. This is the case of Jayant Patel. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, welcome to the island. Last week there was a lot of anger from the Chris Watts episode and totally deserved. If you need to have some more rage, don't forget to search on YouTube for the interview they did with him after his conviction. The audio is not that good so I won't upload it, but it is surreal how he acts and at times jokes with the investigators. They, of course, do it as they want to get as much info out of him as possible, but the way he acts, fuck's sake, he just doesn't give a shit about murdering his family. Anyway, enough about him. Let's get onto a case about a totally incompetent surgeon, Jayant Patel, who was barred in the US and then ended up in Australia, where he would be the centre of multiple suspicious deaths in a hospital in Queensland. Not only is Patel a dickhead, but the hospital administrators that let him practice without properly checking his background are dickheads as well. I think any of us would agree that if you were to be seen by a doctor or go into surgery, that the people who are treating you would be thoroughly vetted by administrators and licensed according to local requirements. You should feel safe and in qualified hands. But what if that doctor that's operating on you is an incompetent asshole that's been run out of one country and has somehow been given the okay to work in your country. How is it so? Well, this is exactly what happened. Now, not only did I research this from newspapers, but also court records and commissions of inquiry set up by the government to find out how this was let happen. So who is this giant Patel. Well, he was born 10th of April 1950, Jamnagar, Guruj, uh, in India, right up in the northwest, not that far from the Pakistani border. He studied at Saurashtra Uni, getting a master's degree in medicine before moving to the US in 1977 to continue his studies at the Rochester School of Medicine. So he ends up in a bit of shit in the US first in New York in 1984 for failing to examine patients before surgery at the Erie County Medical Center, and then he got in the shit in Oregon. I'll read out the summary of known disciplinary record. Now, this short record is public and easily available to any medical association or board or hospital administrator. So, (laughs) just remember that as we come up a bit later. Jane M. Patel, MD, 
Summary of known disciplinary record. 1984, during his residency, Dr. Patel was disciplined by the New York State Board for Professional Medical Conduct for entering patient histories and physicals without examining patients, failing to maintain patient records, and harassing a patient for cooperating with the New York's board's investigation. The BPMC ordered a six-month license suspension with a stay, three years probation, and a fine on each charge. 1989, Dr. Patel applied for an Oregon medical license. The Oregon Board of Medical Examiners, BME or Board, received letters of recommendation regarding Dr. Patel, including one from the Chief of Surgery at Rochester, New York Hospital, and one from Buffalo, New York Hospital, where he finished his training program. These letters gave Dr. Patel superlative reviews. It looks like they just wanted to get rid of him. 1989 to 1998, Dr. Patel practiced in Portland hospitals. 1998, Kaiser Permanente Portland sent the BME a complaint regarding Dr. Patel after conducting a peer review of 79 patient cases handled by Patel The BME hired a consultant and investigated the case. In 2000, the board disciplined Patel for gross or repeated acts of negligence and unprofessional conduct. The board also restricted his ability to perform surgeries. The board reported these disciplinary actions to three national data banks. And in 2001, Patel resigned from Kaiser Permanente. In 2005, Patel's Oregon license was made inactive. So, from this one-page document that, as I said, is easily searchable on the internet, says enough, at least enough, to require any place that he wanted to practice medicine or surgery to perform some type of check on his competency to do so. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But then, I wouldn't be bringing you this case if they'd done so. Now, the last bit of that record states Patel moved to Australia and this is where things get really fucked up. Now, Australia has a world-class medical system and with that comes a responsibility to those that run the system to take the utmost of care and have the policies and procedures in place in all aspects of running the system to ensure that it remains a world-class system. The problem is, that when policies and procedures aren't followed, either through ignorance, neglect, or through a systematic breakdown of the system, shit can hit the fan. In April 2003, Patel was employed as Director of Surgery at Bundaberg Base Hospital. Now, Bundaberg is a city of around 70,000 people and a main rural town, and it's about a four-hour drive north of Brisbane. A base hospital is a regional centre that takes referrals from outlying hospitals and concentrates specialised skills. The thing is, in Australia, we tend to have a shortage of trained medical staff, be it nurses or doctors. So what we do is allow, in Patel's case, overseas trained doctors or OTDs into the country to help relieve the staffing stress on the health system. The shortage is worse in rural or non-capital cities 
And so there was an AON scheme or area of need where overseas doctors would serve time in these outlying areas to help relieve the shortfall. The thing is, they require their background to be checked and have to go through an accreditation process to become licensed. So first, there's a check of your qualifications and then an assessment made of your skill and competence. So what went wrong? Well, Patel was given the job of Director of Surgery and over time, he began to get a bit of a reputation around the place. You don't get the nicknames Dr. E. Coli and Dr. Death for being a talented surgeon. You see, Patel, and I'll read from the Queensland Public Hospitals Commission of Inquiry, Patel came to be employed at Bundaberg Base Hospital without any assessment being made of his clinical skill and competence. This should have been done by that hospital as a condition of his appointment by a process of credentialing and privileging pursuant to a policy and guidelines of Queensland Health which had been in force since 2002. This failure was due to the negligence of Dr Nidham, then Acting Director of Medical Services of Bundaberg Base Hospital. Dr Nidham also caused Dr Patel who had been registered and appointed as a senior medical officer, a position which ordinarily would be supervised, he got him to be appointed as director of surgery. Now, this is also a position ordinarily occupied by a registered specialist surgeon. Patel was subject neither to supervision nor even peer assessment. There were no peers to assess him. By doing it in this way, Nidham avoided the need, he thought, to convene an appointment committee. So what that means is, by giving him such a high-ranking job, he could avoid the checks of his skills and competence. There were no peers to judge him in that area. About a fortnight after Patel commenced work at the base, a Dr Keating replaced Dr Nidham as Director of Medical Services there. Now, in breach of his duty to do so, and knowing that Patel's skill and competence had not been assessed before he commenced employment at the hospital, Keating failed at any time between April 2003 when he was appointed and when he left in 2005 to have that skill and competence assessed by an appropriate credentialing and privileging committee. Now, this was notwithstanding that the policy and guidelines required that his employment was conditional on that being done. And that, in the meantime, Patel's registration was renewed and his employment was extended. So these two ass clowns knowingly ignored the proper procedure in appointing Patel to that position that he was employed. Now, that may be okay if you're delivering pizzas, especially pizza, well, not pizzas with with pineapple, but if you're delivering pizzas, but when it comes to performing surgery to the general public, you need to be thoroughly checked and you've got to check these people out. Now, let me read out a bit more from the inquiry. In the period during which he performed surgery at Bundaberg Base Hospital from April 2003 until early 2005, Patel performed a large number of operations. 
the results of an examination of a comprehensive sample of his operations and aftercare was the subject of evidence by three respected general surgeons, Drs. DeLacy and O'Loughlin, both of whom examined and performed corrective surgery on a number of Patel's former patients, and Dr. Woodruff, who conducted a comprehensive survey of Patel's work by examining hospital records. Dr. DeLacy said that Dr. Patel's conduct as a surgeon was deficient in four main respects, namely his assessment of a presenting patient was inadequate, his surgery techniques were defective, his post-operative management was poor, and his follow-up was inadequate. He concluded by saying that Patel's results were not 10 times worse than one would expect. They were a 100 times worse. Dr. O'Loughlin observed shortcomings in Patel's judgment, knowledge and technical ability. When asked whether he would permit Dr. Patel to operate him or operate on him, he said, no fucking way. Get him away from me. Dr. Woodruff found that there were 13 deaths in which an unacceptable level of care on the part of Dr. Patel contributed to the adverse outcome. And there were a further four deaths in which an unacceptable level of care by Patel may have contributed to the outcome. He found, in addition, 31 surviving patients where Patel's poor level of care contributed or may have contributed to an adverse outcome. He said that he had no hesitation in saying that Patel's performance was incompetent and that this performance was far worse than average or what one might expect by chance. So it wasn't long after Patel started working at the hospital that the complaints started to roll in. In his 24 months at Bundaberg Base Hospital, staff or patients made over 20 complaints about Patel. Those complaints commenced with a procedure he performed six weeks after he commenced at the hospital and continued until he ceased working there. All of the patient's complaints were verified by the examinations of the above specialist surgeons I just uh, told you about. Whilst the complaints varied in their seriousness and the formality with which they were made, some of them were extremely grave. Dr Keating and Mr Leck, who was district manager, persistently ignored or downplayed the seriousness of these complaints. Dr Keating, for instance, was keen to describe the complaints as personality conflicts. In some cases, Keating and Leck's conduct was obstructive or antagonistic to complainants. On the whole, their actions and inactions were unresponsive and discouraged complaint. Patel's avoidance of scrutiny of his conduct was contributed to by the position to which he was appointed, Director of Surgery. By this means, Dr Nynam managed to circumvent the more difficult route of seeking deemed specialist registration, which would have required assessment by the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. The result was that Patel was not supervised 
and given the size of the hospital, he had no peers at the hospital who could assess his clinical skill and competence in the course of their work. So what they mean is, as I said before, they appointed Patel to such a high position, he was able to avoid the normal checks required if he had been appointed as just a doctor or a surgeon or whatever. You see, Lech and Nidham were running the hospital as a business and the patients were customers. Now, the pressure to do this was because of the budget that was given each year to the hospital. Well, they had to maintain a level of, and I won't say service, but a level of production to get the same funding as the previous year. In fact, the historical funding would be slightly reduced each year as expected efficiencies came into effect. There would, however, be bonuses for elective surgery performed at the hospital, so quantity rather than quality was the theme of the day and district managers had been sacked in the past for exceeding budgets. The administrators loved Patel as he was very hard-working and regardless of his careless surgery and lack of proper aftercare, Patel maintained a high throughput of general surgery. Without him, the hospital would not have been able to achieve its elective surgery target. So here we have the perfect storm. Dodgy doctors and cheapskate negligent administrators running the public health system for an ever-increasing tight-ass government intent on cutting budgets year on year. So this goes all the way to the top. Now let's introduce one of the angels of this case, whistleblower Ms. Tony Hoffman. And we know what treatment whistleblowers get when there's money involved. The inquiry said of Tony, it was her courage and persistence which in the face of inaction and even resistance brought the scandalous conduct of Patel to light. The two other important people that helped bring the Patel scandal to the public attention were Rob Messenger MP and Hedley Thomas of the Courier-Mail. Had Rob Messenger not raised Miss Hoffman's complaints in Parliament, it may be that there would never have been a public inquiry, and it was Hedley Thomas whose investigative skill, persistence and undoubted authority as a respected journalist ensured that public notice and government action was taken notwithstanding the apparent reluctance of hospital administrators and officers of Queensland Health to take appropriate action or to permit the matter to be exposed. It was he who first publicly revealed Dr Patel's discreditable past in the United States. Now, one of the first complaints from Tony Hoffman was in regards to a patient, a Mr Phillips, that received an esophagectomy. Now, The patient had a renal condition that would make this operation, cutting a portion of the esophagus out, described as as difficult an osogectomy as one could envisage. The thing is, the patient could have been transferred to Brisbane where they had a sophisticated renal unit. Staff included specialist osophagectomists. (laughs) and much greater facilities to post-operative intensive care. So basically, without saying a cephagectomy again, Patel tried to do that operation at Bundaberg 
Base Hospital rather than transfer the patient to Brisbane where they had better equipment. So Patel went ahead with the operation and the patient was handed over to the intensive care unit. Ms Hoffman recalled that the patient was very unstable, that his blood pressure was so low it could not be recorded and that the anaesthetist commented that this is an expensive way to die. Mr Phillips was given significant quantities of adrenaline, which the commission heard is used to increase or sustain blood pressure and he was maintained on ventilator support. The course of treatment was complicated by the fact that he required constant dialysis and there was some conflict between the doctors as how the patient should be managed. In the event, Mr Phillips progressed to brain death. Tony Hopman complained to the management that Patel was habitually rude, loud and did not work collaboratively with the ICU medical staff. She said that he did not seem to be on the same wavelength as other staff who were working in the intensive care unit, that there was a whole bravado about things and things didn't match up, and that his choice of drugs and treatment seemed to be 20 years behind contemporary thinking. Ms Hoffman would go on to say at the inquiry that she attempted to paint an overall picture of the problems we were encountering in the intensive care unit with Dr Patel, including our observations as to the way Patel interacted and spoke, which indicated that something was not right. I also recall advising that Dr Patel appeared to be very old-fashioned in his treatments. I recall Dr Keating saying, that we had to allow that Dr Patel was from another country. I specifically recall advising Dr Keating that it was more like we were coming from two different planets. Now, I won't go into extensive detail on all of the incidents involving Patel, but as you can see by the one I just gave, Patel was out of his depth, but I want to go over another couple of his fuck-ups. Now, with this complaint about Patel was received on the 2nd of June 2003 and concerned a patient known before the commission as P151. He said that he had a consultation with Dr Patel in April 2003 to discuss the removal of a cancer to his ear. They discussed the location of the cancer, which was clearly visible, he he maintained from his general practitioner's previous attempts at excision and he then attended the base for an operation on the 20th of May 2003. Now this guy complained that when he was discharged from the base and looked in the mirror, he found the operation had been carried out to a very different part of his ear. I mean, what the fuck? Eventually, another doctor checked it and cut the right bit off. But for fuck's sake, imagine that. You go in with a bad leg, the doctor says... We've got to amputate. He puts you under, does it? And when you come out of the anaesthetic, he says, look, we got good news and bad news. What do you want first? You go, give me the bad news. And he goes, oh, we cut the wrong leg off. And he goes, what's the good news? And he goes, oh, the bad one got better. It's, it's just like that. Imagine that. Cut the wrong bit of your ear off. Anyway, eventually another doctor checked, cut out the right bit. <sighs> anyway. In another case, and this is awful, 
A 15-year-old boy had a motorbike accident and he suffered an injury to his femoral vein from which blood was being lost very rapidly. Patel operated on him and in short, it became infected. He was flown to Brisbane Hospital where he eventually, he did have his leg amputated. Now, over the next two years, Patel would fuck up. Tony Hoffman would complain, but nothing was being done. Patients were dying or suffering whilst they tried to recover and some required additional surgery to correct Patel's work, at least the ones that survived. Some of the other issues involving Patel was not washing hands or wearing gloves. He said, and get this, get this, fuck. He said doctors don't have germs. I mean, what the fuck? What do you mean? They're not germs anyway. They're microorganisms. Not changing gloves between patients. So imagine that. Bend over. Oh, and you bend over too. Oh. He uses syringe syringes on multiple patients. I mean, he would be wearing his theatre attire. He'd go out in the car park for a smoke and then he'd walk back into the theatre. Just do another operation. He's just been smoking outside. What the... Anyway, this was going on for two years. Now, as you know, Patel got the nickname Dr. E. Coli or Dr. Death and nursing staff would speak amongst themselves and they'd say, if they were in a car accident on the weekend, please make sure Patel does not operate on me. As Tony Hoffman's uh, concerns grew, she notified the nurses' union and it was decided that she send an official letter of complaint to Peter Leck, that Dr. Leck dude, and he was the district manager. In spite of the meeting with the district manager and the director of nursing, and despite the level of detail contained within the letter, Miss Hoffman heard nothing by the way of response for many, many months. And things just got worse. And guess what? They extended Patel's contract. Miss Hoffman decided that she must take further action and she determined to approach the local Member of Parliament, Mr Messenger. On the 18th of March 2005, Miss Hoffman visited the offices of Mr Messenger and provided him with a copy of her letter dated the 22nd of October 2004. She also spoke for some two hours to him about her concerns and Mr. Messenger recorded that conversation. He then raised the letter in Parliament. Now, I, I might just read all of this out quickly. So the Member of Parliament, he stood up and he's got this to say. For the protection of patients at Bundaberg Base Hospital Intensive Care Unit and the well-being of the medical staff, I make public and table a letter from the nurse unit manager of the Bundaberg Base Hospital ICU. This letter alleges serious concerns relating to the behaviour and clinical competence of Dr Patel, an overseas trained surgeon working at the Bundaberg Base Hospital ICU. The letter submitted to the management of the Bundaberg Base Hospital on or around the 22nd of October 2004 lists the cases of approximately 14 former patients of the Bundaberg Base Hospital ICU who the writer believed required formal investigations. I'm astounded that the Minister for Health has witnessed by his reply this morning to a question without notice from the Shadow Health Minister was ignorant of this investigation. 
Some of the letter's allegations are as follows. Soon after Dr. Patel started operating here, the nursing staff observed a high complication rate amongst patients. Dr. Miach refused to allow Dr. Patel to care for his patients as he stated he had 100% complication rate peritonal dialysis insertion. This was stated in a medical services forum as well as in private conversations with myself. One patient developed hematoma in ward and attempted evacuation done with any analgesia. Doctors' notes consistently say patient well when patient was experiencing large amounts of pain and wound ooze. On the 27th of July 2004, a patient returned to ICU in extremis with a chest injury. Dr. Patel in- interfered in the arrangement of transfer of the patient to Brisbane and the patient died after it was thought the retrieval team were on the way to retrieve this patient. The subsequent events of this intervention resulted in the ICU staff requesting advice from Nurses' Union. It is widely believed among the medical and nursing staff that Patel was very powerful, that he was wholeheartedly supported by Peter Leck, Service Health Administration, Dr. Darren Keating, and he was untouchable. Anyone who tried to alert the authorities about their concerns would lose their job. This perception was indeed perpetrated by Patel on a daily basis. So the letter goes on like that. So you can see that there's a, a lot of people know what's going on. Administrators are intimidating any staff that complain. Any formal complaints aren't going anywhere. Now, the Minister for Health, he knew about what was going on, was just ignoring it. In fact, he was putting Messenger down on TV saying that, oh, this Messenger guy is a troublemaker. So that's one thing for it to be raised in Parliament. But if you want the whole public to know, you've got to get it into the media. Now, thank God for Headley Thomas from the Courier-Mail. He was publicising the issues at the Bundaberg Base Hospital. Now, more reports of Patel's incompetence, they just kept flooding in. In the end, Patel resigned. He fled the country back to Oregon. Now, apparently that flight was paid for by Queensland Health. So, because of all of this, two inquiries were held in 2005. The first, the Morris Inquiry, and then the Davies Inquiry. Both reported that Patel should be brought up on criminal charges. The Morris Inquiry recommended, amongst other things, that Patel be charged with murder or manslaughter in respect to one patient, with causing a negligent act causing harm to another patient, that he also be charged with fraud in relation to his registration at the Medical Board of Queensland to practice medicine and that extradition proceedings should begin. The Davies Inquiry recommended that charges of manslaughter and other criminal offences be prosecuted against Patel as well. Now, I won't get into why there was two inquiries it's all a bit legalistic. So, Patel was arrested on the 11th of March 2008 by the FBI and extradition proceedings be- began. This was successful and Patel arrived back in Australia in handcuffs on the 21st of July 2008. 
Patel was tried in the Queensland Supreme Court for the unlawful killing of three patients and grievous bodily harm to a fourth. He pleaded not guilty to all charges. On the 29th of June 2010, he would be found guilty on all four charges and sentenced to mm, seven years in prison. The families of the dead and those whose lives had been ruined by Patel were so happy that some justice had finally been done. Tony Hoffman felt vindicated for whistleblowing, even though it had been an extremely stressful time against the powers to be of not only from her bosses, but from the whole medical board and even right at the top of the health ministers. However, Patel was to appeal. Now, he was unsuccessful until he appealed to the High Court. Now, during his trial, the one he got found guilty, the prosecution had changed tack on how they were going to deal with Patel. And after 43 days, this could have caused an issue with the jurors. Eventually, the appeal succeeded and the sentence was quashed. There was a retrial on one of the counts and the jury found him not guilty. In a plea deal, the prosecution dropped all other charges in exchange for Patel pleading guilty to two counts related to him dishonestly gaining registration and two counts related to dishonestly gaining employment in Queensland. Patel was sentenced to a two-year suspended sentence for those fraud charges. I mean, fuck's sake. They fucked up the prosecution. Basically, in his trial, they were going down one track and then 43 days in, they turned around and wanted to conduct the trial in a different manner. Now, this just fucks everything up. It doesn't give you a fair trial. In the end, the second time they tried, during the retrial, he was found not guilty. So they knew there was going to be so hard to get him on any of the other charges, they just did a plea deal and he was basically let go. So if you want a more detailed read on this case, because I was only able to give you a snippet of what went on, there is a book by that Courier-Mail journalist Headley Thomas called Sick to Death. Headley, he's the guy involved in the Teacher's Pet podcast about the disappearance of Lynn Dawson, which if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend you do. That's the Teacher's Pet podcast. This guy's an award winner. So if you want to get some really good detail on this, the book is called Sick to Death. So let's just go over this a little bit. Patel, he was a hard-working but incompetent surgeon. After being kicked out of the US because of his incompetence, and by kicked out I mean in, in New York and Oregon, the health authorities stopped him from practising. He comes to Australia and gets to work at Bundaberg Base Hospital. Now, the admin there failed to do the basics che- basic checks and testing for him to work in Australia. They needed a surgeon and they were happy to bend the rules to get one. This was all down to maintaining their funding. Patel was a hard worker with fast turnover of patients, but the problem was it was quantity over quality. But the hospital still got paid whether or not the patients lived or died. Eventually, Tony Hoffman, after being snubbed for her concerns about Patel, was able to get a Member of Parliament and a journo interested in the case. 
The journo Headley Thomas did a quick Google search of Patel and found he had issues in the US in regards to his quackery. Now, I'm telling you, I did this same quick search and I think I got the exact same document that Headley got. It was the one with the, it's about an A4 page, just the absolute basics of how bad he is. That's all he did. So anyone could have done that in management. So they can't say, oh, his background was so hidden or anything like that. You know, it was so simple to search this. So management, if they'd done or they did do, maybe they did do and search it, they were willing to ignore this for the funding that Patel could bring in. Eventually the gig was up and Patel fled the country only to be extradited on murder charges. These charges stuck until his final appeal where it was found that the prosecution fucked up the case and he ended up on a few fraud charges and set free to flee the country again and probably keep doing what he does best. Bad surgery. But this time he's probably in some, well, we don't hope, but he's probably in some third world country. Probably gone back to India and where he can just continue to do this. What a story. <laughs> I don't, you know, you really do help hope that you're in good hands when you go under. But, uh, and it's not funny what happened in this case, but it's absolutely shocking. Anyway, that's about it for the, this case. So now we get on to the Patreon shout outs for this week. Now, big hi to Brian. Thank you very much, Brian. And also David Hannafin. Thanks, David. And hi to Jerry as well. And I think I shouted out Jeff Chapman last week. I'm sure I did. I don't know. Good on you, Jeff. And as you know, the island is commercial free, as you probably hate ads as much as I do. And so if you want to support the island, you can do for as little as $1 a month. You can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash true crime island, or you can donate one off at paypal.me forward slash true crime island. Now, someone did that last week. A big shout out to Emma from the UK. Thank you so much for your donation. She wanted me to shout out to her husband, David Bromley. Bormfuckalunga, David and Emma. Thank you so much. Emma apparently was a bit sick and was sitting in bed while David took care of her listening to True Crime Island. So thank you very much. You can also help out the island. You can get into some of the island wear at truecrimeisland.threadless.com where you can grab a Bormfuckalunga t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag, even beach towels. The most popular is the Mug of Rage. But, as I always say, please only order it in white. If you want keychains, koozies, or lapel pins, you need to contact me directly. I think I've got two koozies left. That's it. You need to contact me on at cambo at truecrimeisland.com. Send me an email. I can sort you out. Like I said, I think I've got one or two koozies left. And plenty of keychains, pins, and stickers. I've got new stickers in. You can also support the island by rating and reviewing and sharing the podcast with friends and family. I'm on most of the social medias. Just search for True Crime Island. Look, the last few weeks I've been hard up trying to keep up with it all. So if if you do have a post and I haven't liked it or replied, just give me a few days sometimes. 
If you want to contact me regarding a case, please send me an email as sometimes I do get lost in all the social media. This one was from Asian Princess, I think, suggested this one from uh, Instagram. We do have a promo this week for Murderific. They've just launched Season 3, so look them up and have a listen. This opening episode is about Marvin (laughs) Haymire who you may remember I covered last year sometime. He was the killdozer guy. It's a great story and worth a listen. So that's Islanders. That's it, Islanders. And this is your host. I'll get all this out at the end. It's been a long day. This is your host, Cambo. Grab your beer, pull up your deck chair, delete your browser history, and boom, fuck along. Good night. Murderific True Crime Podcast, hosted by Bernadette from the state of Maine. Topics will include some seriously true scary stories about serial killers, mass murderers, familicides, the missing, and unsolved cases. Go to www.murderific.com to start listening now or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until then, we will be executing podcasts one crime at a time.